And it's, it's important because people often talk about, think about what happens when we die. What happens if and when the world ends. You know, certainly in the days in which we're living right now, it's like, man, I don't know if I believe in the end of the world, but if I did, it'd be something like this, you know. And so these are the kind of questions that come up in people's minds. And uh, these were anxieties back then. These were anxieties before Paul wrote this. These are anxieties since Paul wrote this. These are anxieties in our day as well. And so Paul is addressing these sorts of issues. The return of Christ. uh, The second coming. Uh, And this is the event at the end of time when Jesus returns to the earth. And listen, brings in, ushers in the eternal state. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness alone will dwell forever and ever and ever. And that's what we're looking for as Christians. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're waiting for. And so in 4, 13 to 18, the question has to do with the deceased Christians. When Jesus returns and, um, you know, what's happened? What about them when Jesus comes back at the second coming? And then 5, 1 to 11 has to do with the fate of living Christians at the time of the return. Same eschatological event, different perspectives. The perspective of the believing dead, the perspective of the believer that still is alive, walking around on planet Earth. And I, and I want to say this again, I said it last week, but I think it's so important for us to understand that uh, our lives are shaped, shaped, molded, by what we truly believe about the future. If we believe that we die and we're worm food, how are you going to live? If we believe that we die and basically everybody goes to heaven, except the really bad people, how are you going to live? I mean, you know, everybody goes, I mean, everybody goes to heaven. Except for like Stalin and, you know, Hitler, stuff like that. But I mean, everybody else pretty good. And everybody else goes to heaven. And so, you know, just be a good person and you make it. Like, that's the, that's the fundamental view of, uh, of people in our, in our country. That, that's foundation. I would, I would start there if I was assuming anybody's beliefs. Walking up to them, talking to them cold. I, I, that's what I would assume. I think there's an increasing number of people that would say, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in these different things. There's an increasing number of those. But I think for the most part, people believe in heaven and hell. People believe there's a God. And people believe they're, they're going to be just fine. And so we as biblical Christians, we as people who hold to this word and believe, I mean, as members of this church, right, we affirm that this is the word of God. And we affirm that what is said in here is inerrant, infallible, authoritative. And we, not perfectly, but we're seeking to, to the best of our ability, live our lives under the authority of this book, of this word. And what it says in passages like this and other passages should shape and mold the way that we live today in light of what's coming. The problem is sometimes other things, we believe other things more than we believe these things. We really do. And, and it shows, listen, it shows in the way that we live. 
you, you know, this is so important, you know that what you truly believe will be seen in the way that you live. I mean, you can, you can say something until you're blue in the face, but what you truly believe will be seen in the way that you live your life. By the way you spend your time, by the way you spend your money, by the things you say, by the things you do. And, and what's interesting to me is that Paul absolutely sees this idea, these ideas on eschatology and the end times events as being crucial to help mold and shape the way that we live in the present time. And, and perhaps, I, I've been doing a lot of reading this last week that's not here, but I, I think that Paul uh, has a really interesting view that we can spend more time thinking about. Um, I mean, you know, he, he talks about the, the Lord being, you know, at the door. He, he talks about the Lord being at hand, right? Uh, these sorts of things. Like, his expectation was that it could happen at any moment. There's great discussion as he talks about those, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. People say, well, did he think that he was going to be alive when Jesus came back? I don't think he ruled it out. I don't think he was absolutely like pressing that point. But I don't think he ruled it out. I think he thought in, in 70, or you know, 30, 50, whatever, whenever he died, I don't know exactly when he died. But I think he thought that he could be, he could see the Lord return. And I think every one of us should, should think that we could see the Lord return. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, I grew up in Calvary, and we had all kinds of charts and all kinds of different things. And in order for the Lord to return at the end of time and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, uh, separate the sheep and the goats, etc., final judgment, there's a whole bunch of stuff that still has to happen. But the way I read the Bible, the way from an amillennial perspective, from a reformed amillennial perspective, there's nothing that needs to happen. Nothing. There's not one thing. Like Jesus could come back, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, in the twinkling of an eye. Not a blink of an eye, a twinkling of an eye, which is even faster. Which means, do you understand this? The next time you blink, Jesus could be standing in your sight. Like every time you blink... I mean, do you, have, do you have that kind of expectation? It could be right. It, I see people going, just holding their eyes up. <laughs> not blinking. Not blinking anymore. I'm shutting that down. But, but that's the kind of language. He could come at any moment. You know, people, like, you go to Calvary, it's like, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And the church is taken out and all these tribulation, the, the seven-year tribulation, three-and-a-half-year midpoint, you know, the Antichrist is revealed, and it's three-and-a-half years of the great tribulation, the first three years are, are really good, kind of, and treaties and all this. No. 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 The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the end of the present reality. That should shape the way that we live today. Somebody was asked... I think it was John Wesley. You know, if the Lord was going to, if you knew that the, Charles Wesley, John Wesley, one of the Wesleys, uh, if you knew the Lord was going to come today, how would you live? And he said, I'd live the same way I was living, I'm living today. I'd do the same things. 
I don't know, somebody asked Luther, if you knew the Lord was coming today, he said, I'd go plant a tree. I don't know, maybe he's into trees or something like that, I don't know. But the, his point was, I'd continue to do the same thing I'm doing today. And, and we need to know, if, if the Lord were coming today, tonight, like, could we say that we'd continue to be living in light of standing before King Jesus? That we'd, we'd go ahead and continue to live the way we're living right now? That's a good question to ask. Are we ready for that? Are we ready to stand before King Jesus? And so verse 13, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Right? Those, are the, those are the believers that have gone home to be with the Lord. Paul says in uh, Philippians 1, as he's awaiting to hear back from Caesar, uh, he's on trial for his faith, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he says, uh, I don't know what I would choose, uh, and he says there, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Okay? Philippians 1. So, there are those that have departed to be with Christ, which is far better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the scriptures declare. So your last breath here is your first breath here. Or your last breath here, you know, you take your next breath in uh, the Lord's presence. In that intermediate, we call it the intermediate state. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. So that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And we talked about this last week, but just to repeat it briefly... That they talked about in that culture, sleep, death being a type of sleep, but there was no waking from that death. There was no coming back, and so there was a sense of hopelessness. Why? Because we're separated forever. It's, it's over. It's done. And they were hopeless. And Paul says, it's good, we talked about this last time, it's good to grieve. We should grieve. It's, a, it's healthy to grieve and mourn and weep and do whatever we need to do. But we don't do these things apart from hope as Christians. That's one of the greatest things about being Christians. Why? Why can we have hope? Because in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We have hope for our loved ones who have gone home to be with the Lord, who have died in faith because Jesus died and rose again. And because he died and rose again, that means that we will live forever. That means that we will die and rise again. Because he was the first fruits of the resurrection and we are united, connected to him through faith. So, Jesus came, took our humanity. God gave him a body and a soul. He lived for 33 years He obeyed the law, earned the blessings, and then died on the cross and took our cursings, our curses, the ones that we deserved, so that we could be blessed, to be granted the blessings of eternal life that have begun now, by the way, and last forever. This is eternal life that you know the Father and the Son. You have, brothers and sisters, through faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life right now. You understand that eternal life has already begun If you believe in Jesus, it's not like you have temporal life now and then you will have eternal life in the future. You have eternal life, abiding life right now. 
and you'll live forever. Jesus won that for us. And Jesus came and he lived the life that we couldn't live, that we needed to live. He died the death that we deserved to die, taking the infinite wrath of an almighty, holy God upon himself, and he quenched it. He exhausted it. So there is not, dear friends, one drop left for you. And then he went back to heaven after he rose from the grave. He went back to heaven and he sits at the Father's right hand right now, ruling and reigning right now over all things. And this is so important. So uh, the amillennial perspective is the position I hold. I would say it's the position that most people have held down through uh, the generations. And just because it's the position that's held doesn't mean it's necessarily the right position. But as I grew up again in Calvary, I was taught that the, the dispensational premillennial view was the only serious view. And, you know, we were the only ones that took our Bibles seriously. And everybody else just kind of messes around and allegorizes. That was the kind of language they would use. You allegorize or whatever. But then I came to find out that the views that are held by Calvary, which, by the way, are the broadly held views in our country, which most people, if they've thought about eschatology at all, believe these views, that these views are only a couple of hundred years old. And so for 1,800 years of church history, this this pre-tribulation rapture and the seven-year period of time where all these things happen, and then a thousand-year literal reign of Christ on the earth as he rules from Jerusalem... These are new things. These are new. For 1,800 years, they weren't held. They weren't believed. And so the amillennial perspective says this. Jesus rules and reigns right now. And I, and I would say, and, and most if not almost all Reformed people would say, that the millennium is right now. We're in the millennium. The thousand years is just a big number for a big period of time, an indefinite period of time between the first coming of the Lord and the second coming of the Lord. We're not looking for some millennium in the future. We're not looking for Jesus to come back and set up a thousand year millennial reign of Christ as he rules and reigns from the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, those, those, that view that believes that in a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ goes to places like Ezekiel 40 to 48 and talks about rebuilding the temple and offering up animal sacrifices again. What? What are, we, what are we doing? We're going from types and shadows to fulfillment in Christ and then going back to types and shadows again? What are we doing? It's ridiculous, Right? And we could, again, we could spend more time on, on these sorts of things. But um, Jesus rules and reigns right now over all things. He is splendid and he is glorious and he is in control and he is given authority by the Father. And he will return when the Father sends him on that last day and everything will be finalized. The eternal state will be ushered in and everything will be finalized. So we believe that Jesus died and 
rose again, and we would say went back to, to heaven and is there ruling and reigning, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What about the people who have, have, have died in the Lord? Did they miss it? Are they second class? Are they worse off than us? And Paul is saying, absolutely not. Because when Jesus comes back, he's bringing them with. He's bringing them with. They're coming. They're also coming. God will bring with him, right? The idea that they are with him. He will bring with him those who have, again, fallen asleep. Those are in the intermediate state right now. Listen, they are blessed. We were talking about, I had a question last week as uh, we were leaving about Lazarus. And we, we were talking about Lazarus last week. And I had a question, like, um, so was like Lazarus in heaven for those three days? And then Jesus raised him and he had to like come back? And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's the deal. And you have to think, if you, if you have any kind of right thinking on this, you have to think, poor Lazarus, right? Like maybe Jesus was shedding some tears as he was weeping there for the fact that he was going to have to yank him out of that glorious place and bring him back. I'm sure Lazarus came out and was taking off the grave clothes or whatever as he's, he's wandering out. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And he comes to his soul back in his body and he kind of wanders out of his tomb there. And I'm sure he's looking around going, man, what in the world am I doing here? This is awful. You know, Paul went to heaven. And, and he says, it's interesting, isn't it? There are all these books that are being written. Well, I died and went to heaven. And here's my book that I'm writing a couple hundred pages long and it's a New York Times bestseller because everybody wants to know but, but they're a sham they're a sham Paul said I went to the third heaven and he said I saw stuff that it would be unlawful for me to even talk about and so you know what Paul said about his encounter with being in heaven for a time I'm not going to talk about it I don't, I don't think there are words to describe it. I don't think you'd get it. If I, if I had the words, you wouldn't get it. I'm not going to say anything about it. So it's glorious now for our loved ones, our friends that know the Lord, that are with the Lord. It's glorious. They are with the Lord. They are in the Lord's presence. They are enjoying him. And when the Lord ret- returns, they come with. For, for, those, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, right, that's where he is, and remember in Acts chapter 1, remember in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended, when he went up to heaven, the angel says, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, they saw him blow up, go up. And, uh, but, by the way, let me just read this. Let me read this. Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the result will be that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Right? Key organizing verse for all of, Revela- uh, for all of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8. 
And when he had said these things, Jesus said that to his disciples, the apostles, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. A cloud. Was that a cumulus cloud or what's the other kind? What? Nimbus. Nimbus? I thought he was calling me names. It's a glory cloud. It's not a rain cloud. It's not a, it's a glory cloud. The, the cloud that he's, and do you see the way that we interpret scripture? We're like, oh, he, they saw him going up and then there was some, there must have been rain that day or something. And he just, that's not what, I mean, maybe there was something, maybe that, but that's not the point. As you read Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it talks about the cloud there, the cloud of glory. As you think about the, the Israelites in the, in the wilderness wanderings, they had a, a pillar of fire that led them by night and a pillar of cloud by day that was the glory of the Lord. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus is there with his boys. Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter's there, the others. And what happens? A cloud comes over them. And the Lord speaks from the cloud. There's all of these images in Scripture of the cloud pointing to the glory of the Lord. And so in verse 16, coming back to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, coming back from where he went, right? He floated up into the clouds, he went up. And by the way, back in Acts 1, 11, why are you standing looking? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back down from heaven to earth. And here we have that image. The Lord will descend back down from heaven with a cry of command, military term, that points to authority and power, as he's able to, has the authority to call Every human being together, living and dead, believing and unbelieving, to a judgment at the end of the age. Cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God. The trumpet sound, the trumpet summons or call having to do with exiles returning over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures. Calling them back together. Calling them in. And it says the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, I think, Robert, you mentioned that. The dead in Christ will rise first. This is according to their resurrection bodies. Their souls are in the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Yet, their bodies rest in the ground until the resurrection. This is the resurrection. Those believing dead... Their bodies are raised, body and soul brought back together as is proper and fitting. God made us that way at the beginning, body and soul. And here you have the body and the soul being reunited forever. We call it the glorified body that is perfectly suited for our eternal abode. I don't know about you. But I'm ready to trade this bad boy in. It constantly lets me down. And in increasing fashion. 
I'm ready for a new one. And that's good because I'm going to get one. I'm going to get one. And it's going to be perfectly suited for our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness alone will dwell. And so the Lord himself will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, you know, if he came tonight, right? We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. There it is. There's the rapture, friends. Raptus, right? That's where we get the rapture from. Latin. Caught up together with them. Uh, before I go any further, sometimes, sometimes Reformed folks will say there is no rapture. No, there is a rapture. There absolutely is a rapture. It's in the Bible. There's a rapture. It's just the timing of the rapture. The rapture takes place when Jesus returns. So, in the imagery here, Jesus comes back with those that have died in him already. He brings them back down. And as he's coming, in some way, shape, or form, those that are remaining, but, you know, well, those that are remaining will be called up, snatched up to meet the Lord in the clouds. Right? There's that language again of the clouds. The glory. And the beautiful thing that's going on here, you know, it's, we, we so often sensationalize these things. The greatest thing that we read here is that those believing dead that are resurrected, given the resurrection bodies, and those who are alive that are still walking around who are left, when they're caught up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, the best part about all of this is that and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the best thing. They're already with the Lord. We're now going to be with the Lord if he comes in our lifetime when we're still walking around. And all believers for all time will be with the Lord in glorified bodies forevermore. And we will be with one another. That is the most important thing that Paul is teaching here. And we, we get all into all the other stuff. And I get it. I, it's important to understand these different things. But that's the most important thing. Is that we will be with our Lord and be with our loved ones who are in Christ forever and ever and ever. And there's no separation. There's no separation. No separation from him. No separation from one Another. And so, even though I filled in some gaps, and we're not going to go much longer here, even though I've filled in some gaps and some details that Paul hasn't filled in here, you know, as I've smoothed out some things and kind of painted a little bit more imagery than Paul did, the thing he's really emphasizing is not about a sequence of events in this passage, it's not about details or direction, but rather the result. Christians are going to be together. Christians are going to be with their Lord forever and ever from this moment on. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so it's an interesting phrase here, this idea of meeting the Lord in the air. 
clouds in Scripture, like I said, have to do with glory. And this going up, and we're going to wrap up here. We won't even move into chapter uh, 5 tonight. We'll catch that next time. But this going up to meet the Lord in the air is in order that believers might be at his side when he returns. There's no movement back to heaven. Right? That's our pre-tribulation friends. And by the way, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. But in this pre-tribulation view, the church is taken up and taken out, and then they go back to heaven for seven years and uh, look at everything from the mezzanine, as it were, right? From the bleachers, as they see all of this stuff taking place. And, but there's no, there's no imagery here of going back to heaven. The movement is down from heaven to earth. And so the, move, the going up is only to meet the Lord so that believers might be at his side when he comes and returns. It's to be part of his entourage, you see? Part of his retinue when he comes back to earth. It's to be separate and separated from those who will be judged. For those that are destined for wrath and condemnation. There's this separation that takes place here. Like we're with our King, Jesus. We're with our Lord and Savior. And those that are left in that moment are the damned, are the judged. And you just have two groups of people now. You have those that will answer for their own sin and pay for their own sin eternally. And on the other hand, you have those that Jesus has paid for and lived for. You have those that are going to have their sins judged at this time, the unbelieving, and you have those that have had their sins judged 2,000 years ago at Calvary's cross. And those are the two groups of people. There, there aren't you know, Christians and Jewish people and Old Testament saints and tribulation believers. and all. There's just believers and unbelievers. Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition between, believer and un, or between Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2 talks about that. And now there's just one new man from the two. Either you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian. Or you're, either you're a believer or a non-believer. And we may appreciate that. I hope we really do appreciate that today. But I assure you, when Jesus comes back, there will be nothing that you could ever appreciate more than owning the name and rightfully wearing the name Christian. And so Paul says, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. And I closed on it last week, but I close on it again tonight. In light of these truths, how can we think about encouraging one another? Not idle speculation, not arguments and fighting but encouraging one another with these words. Encouraging one another with gospel words about the way that the Lord has saved us and is saving us and will ultimately save us on the last day. Justification and sanctification and glorification. And let these truths 
sink deeper and deeper down into your heads, hearts, minds, so that they actually affect the way that you live. Don't keep these truths and these realities at arm's length so that they have absolutely no effect on you. Take them in. Drink them in until you see difference in your life.